The next set of papers focused on head, neck, and lung cancer. And to begin, Dr. Ed Kim commented on what he considers the major focus of the head and neck papers presented in Chicago. The theme of this year's ASCO with regards to head and neck cancer really focused on EGFR and not the science necessarily, but more so the clinical application thereof. Certainly, cetuximab was approved for use in locally advanced head and neck cancer in combination with radiation recently from the Bonner trial showing a benefit with cetuximab and radiation together versus radiation alone. Another indication that came about that was in the second-line setting after platin failure in advanced head and neck cancer, cetuximab alone as a single agent produced a response rate between 10 and 12 percent. This year's ASCO also added upon the EGFR story. The first abstract we're talking about is abstract 6012. Dr. Hitt and colleagues presented this late-breaking abstract on cetuximab plus weekly paclitaxel. This was a phase two study done through the Spanish Head Neck Cancer Group. It was a bit early to present this data. There were some studies that I think could have probably waited for more mature data to be reported. Nonetheless, it was reported at this year's ASCO as an oral presentation. The schedule was not entirely clear as to why it was picked. The dose of the paclitaxel was 80 per meter squared weekly. Again, there's not a lot of data with weekly paclitaxel alone out there. That question did come up, and there was really no explanation as to how this regimen came about other than you gave both of the drugs on a weekly basis. There were 46 patients enrolled, 42 were valuable. Again, this was a trial that really just compared the two-drug combination. And again, they reported very early a 60% overall response rate with high CR and PR rates, as well as uh, progression-free survival of five months. Again, no survival data was reported. They also reported tolerability in this regimen. So the conclusion was, can we apply this now into our metastatic recurrent population? Again, this was a first-line metastatic recurrent. I would say it's a little bit premature. We need to see more of the data as it comes out. Certainly intriguing. Maybe there are enhanced sensitivity properties with cetuximab and paclitaxel. Hard to say based on this study. Another paper that incorporates an anti-EGFR strategy actually was yours, a phase two study looking at erlotinib, docetaxel, and cisplatinum in these patients. Can you talk about that? I'll try to remain very unbiased about this study, of course. This was a study that we actually conceived in 2002, way before any of the mature cetuximab data. Certainly, cetuximab was being studied. Jafitinib was being studied, very limited in head and neck cancer. And erlotinib was not even FDA approved at that time. We wanted to combine it with cisplatin and docetaxel because we had done a prior study, a phase two study that was multicenter that Dr. Bonnie Glisson reported in the JCO that showed activity with cisplatin and docetaxel as a good doublet regimen in recurrent metastatic head and neck cancers. In order to build on this, we wanted to add the erlotinib to this regimen and see if we could improve the response rate, which was the primary endpoint, to something over 50% with some degree of confidence. 
We enrolled 48 patients who were eligible into this study, 50 patients total, and reported at this year's ASCO that the combination of cisplatin at 75 per meter squared, docetaxel at 75 per meter squared, and erlotinib at 150 milligrams daily gave us a response rate of about 66%, a progression-free survival of six months, and an overall survival of 11 months. And particularly interesting were the survival numbers. The progression-free survival is about two months better than what you would expect with standard doublet therapy. The median overall survival, 11 months, is also pretty high. Again, taking into account this is a phase two study, single center, single arm study. Nonetheless, the data are very intriguing. And even more intriguing is that these TKIs did not work well in lung cancer in combination with chemotherapy. And many hypotheses were generated after those studies. Again, it's much easier to try and find reasons why a study is negative rather than predicting why a study would be positive. And so we had a lot of that negativity in lung cancer sort of spill over, and that's why there's been some skepticism with combining EGFR drugs with chemotherapy and head and neck. But these are different tumor types. We have to keep that in mind. And certainly, based on this activity, we'd be encouraged to move forward with more of a randomized design to see the effect of erlotinib with chemotherapy. And looking at both of these regimens, what is the next step going to be in terms of clinical trials? Well, I think for cetuximab, it's mostly going to be feasibility. There is data that we will talk about, the extreme data, that did show a benefit in survival when adding cetuximab with a platin, either carboplatin or cisplatin with 5-FU, and did show a survival of 10.1 months versus 7.4 months. This was the study that Jan Vermorken presented at this year's ASCO as a late breaking. This had been press released about a month and a half earlier, so it was not altogether surprising. However, I was a bit disappointed that progression-free survival and response rate and some of the other data were not presented at this year's meeting, so we will await those numbers later this year. So I think from Dr. Hitt's study with the weekly paclitaxel, really it's going to be showing feasibility, whether you can use a single drug with cetuximab. But as far as registrational purposes and applying this to your practice, a bit too early. As far as with the erlotinib, this is a decision that is going to be made to see if there is desire to move forward with a randomized phase two incorporating erlotinib with cisplatin and docetaxel. There is thoughts based on the discussion that Marshall Posner did a very nice job on the discussion of these abstracts to then use progression-free survival as an endpoint, but then to continue or allow people to cross over to the biologic drug once progression occurred to see if that makes a difference. Is the combination of erlotinib, docetaxel, cisplatinib something that you yourself would utilize in a non-protocol setting? I can tell you very frankly I have, as others have in our department. I also have physicians from across the country who have also incorporated this. And I was more encouraged from the study aspects that these non-protocol patients from doctors in the community used this regimen and saw responses similar to what we were seeing. Now, again, I don't have written documentation or scans that were sent in to me, but when I have doctors calling me saying, wow, after four cycles, I've seen a tremendous response, I was a bit encouraged from those types of reports showing that really outside of MD Anderson, you can't achieve this, and the drugs are readily available for patients as well. Now, I am 
again, not encouraging our doctors out there to run and use this as their first-line de facto regimen. We did have neutropenia issues, which we used with growth factor support. But have people used it? Yes. Have they seen activity? Yes. Let's talk about the SWOG study that was also reported at this meeting, looking at it was a phase two study of docetaxel, cisplatin, and 5-FU induction, followed by radiation therapy with cisplatin. Can you talk about that paper? Well, this was a study that Dr. Adelstein presented, and they used an induction regimen of TPF, which seems more relevant now probably than before when they were designing the study as TPF, the Taxotere Cisplatin 5-FU regimen, has recently been FDA-approved to use as an induction regimen in locally advanced head and neck cancer. Again, we want to separate the fact that we do not know if an induction followed by definitive treatment strategy is better than starting with concurrent chemoradiation up front. And those studies are being done, and hopefully in the next several years we will have those answers. This study also used accelerated fractionation with concomitant boost. And we know that accelerated fractionation does improve local disease control versus daily fractionation. And so it is something that has been used in other studies more recently. This was an interesting study in that it tried to use a modern triplet, TPF, and follow that up with high-dose cisplatin and accelerated fractionation radiation. There was a lot of toxicity, which was acknowledged, and Merrill Keyes did a very nice job discussing this abstract as well as a couple others we'll talk about. There were two deaths during the induction. There were two deaths during the concurrent phase. And one of the slides that Dr. Adelstein showed was how patients fared as they began treatment with induction chemotherapy and how many actually finished. And although there were 68% of patients who ended up completing all the therapy. That seems like a low number, but in some other studies, this number has not been too far off. So about 20% of the patients, 74 to begin with, did not make the chemoradiation part, which is the more important part of the treatment. This is the definitive therapy. Only 61 patients began the concurrent chemoradiation. So although they did report very high activity, there was also some very high toxicity, and we'll have to find a balance eventually as to how aggressive we should be based on whether this is the appropriate strategy to take in these locally advanced head and neck cancers. Last paper I want to ask you about from a head and neck perspective is abstract 6021, which looks at the combination of erlotinib and bevacizumab, it's a regimen that's been looked at in non-small cell and report some data in terms of the pharmacodynamic factors with this combination. Can you talk about that? This was an interesting combination and was some work that was reported previously by Dr. Cohen combining bevacizumab and erlotinib in recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer. There was, I think, very high hopes for this to work very well in this setting. The response rate was 14.6% with a stable disease rate of 54%. So people were a little bit disappointed by those results. I think clearly biologic combinations are something that we have to continue. This study was also unique in that it tried to really get biopsies in patients. And there were two arms to this study. They were the same treatment arms. It's just that in one arm, bevacizumab was started on day one. And in another regimen, the second arm, the bevacizumab was started on day 15. And the biopsy was done prior to the start of the bevacizumab, again, on day 15. The phase one portion, 
found a dose-limiting toxicity and a maximum tolerated dose. There were 22 patients there. The phase two endpoint was to really try and see if you could find any changes or differences or predictors of response with these different biological markers. And the markers they focused on were VEGF, the KDR, and phospho-KDR, which is you know, VEGFR2, also phospho-ERK, phospho-EGFR, and a tunnel assay, which looks at apoptosis. They looked at both tumor and endothelial cells, and they used expression quantitation with laser scanning cytometry. And what they found was is that of these markers, the total phospho-KDR-KDR ratio predicted complete response, and that these higher ratios were also associated with better progression-free survival, and also there were higher amounts of apoptosis seen as well. Although I love the concept of this study, their one-year survival here was 30%, and that's in a pretreated regimen group, so that's very good. There were only six paired samples, and in the samples they used the ratio and could predict complete response. So a very limited number of tissue used. There were two CRs in the study, so that was obviously nice to see, and that's what they used as correlation. I think, again, this is a step in the right direction as far as how we want to conduct head and neck trials and solid tumor trials in the future to look for biomarkers and to help explain better in case the clinical results are not as good or not as encouraging as we'd like to be able to say, hey, we can get a biopsy, we can do this ratio and begin to predict. And we've been doing those things in lung cancer, we've tried to through our own efforts, Clearly, in head and neck cancer, this is the same way. The tissue is more accessible. But we really need to change the culture of trying to get more biopsies in patients to be able to make these types of assessments and help us for the future studies. What do we know about the single-agent activity of erlotinib and bevacizumab in head and neck cancer? Well, there's not really any single-agent data out there with bevacizumab. There's very few trials single-agent bevacizumab out there, and we have seen that it probably works better in combination with another compound, whether that be a chemotherapeutic compound, a cytotoxic compound, or a biologic compound. Erlotinib, this was actually published two years after we conceived our trial in head and neck with the combination of cis and docetaxel and was a disappointing 4.3% response rate. And that was in over 100 patients. Dr. Sulieres presented and published this data. It was not as high as we expected, as erlotinib seems to have better potency in lung cancer. Jafitinib had a higher response rate in head and neck cancer, granted at the 500 milligram dose level. So we're expecting a little bit more, and I think that was a bit disappointing to see. Let's talk a little bit about lung cancer, and there were a couple of papers in small cell that I wanted to get your take on. First, from the NCI of Canada, BR20, looking at ZD6474 in patients with small cell. Can you comment on that? So Dr. Arnold presented this study, which was a randomized phase two study. It was 107 patients. There were some issues as far as balancing of the arms. They weren't too well balanced. They did allow both extensive stage and limited stage into this study. The performance status, zero patients, there were more performance status, zero patients actually in the placebo, almost double than the ZD6474 arm. As far as age greater than 60, there were twice as many in the placebo as opposed to the 6474. So issues right away as far as stratifying these patients. 
there was toxicity clearly with the 6474 arm, 79% diarrhea, 71% rash, these were all grades, and 15% QT prolongation. Progression-free survival was very similar in both the maintenance arm as well as the placebo arm, 2.7 versus 2.8 months, and overall survival was very similar. So although in concept it was a unique idea to give maintenance therapy after patients had chemotherapy, either a complete or partial response to induction chemotherapy, there was speculation as to why it didn't work. Perhaps you should give it with the chemotherapy. So now we're having studies that are being reported of not combining these agents, and now we're hypothesizing that we should combine the agents. So, Neil, it's sort of spiraling back and forth, right? We went through the era of combining all these agents with chemo and saying that was a bad thing. Now we're separating them, and our conclusions will be maybe we should combine them. I think this begs for us to go back to our preclinical models see where the sensitivities lie, see these concepts, test it out a little bit more thoroughly, and then use those to predict what may happen in the clinic. I like this study design. I don't know how much preclinical data existed on this study. Clearly, it's another negative study, and we're left explaining how to explain the results and why it was negative. What do we know about the mechanism of action of 6474? Well, this is a molecule I really like. It hits many targets, as many of the small molecules do. They're more dirty drugs, per se. They hit multiple targets as opposed to antibodies, which are a little bit more clean in their target. This drug predominantly hits VEGF and the KDR receptors, as well as EGFR. And so it does have this dual inhibition property. Additionally, it also hits things such as RET, and that's why there have been reports of medullary thyroid carcinoma responding to this drug because of the ret proto-oncogene and inhibiting that signal. So there are multiple areas that it hits, and I think this is a drug that we will see. It is being tested in lung cancer in a registration strategy combined with or versus taxotere alone in the second-line lung cancer setting. I'm hopeful that this drug gains approval and allows us to study it more widely in other tumor types, as I think there's a lot of potential here. Isn't this one of the agents that you yourself are studying in the so-called battle trials? We are studying this in the battle trials. We had to pick these drugs for our battle program, and I'll take a step back. The battle program is something that derived from our Department of Defense grant. Wan Ki Hong is the PI of that grant. And for our year five application, we decided we wanted to get personal. And how to best get personal is try and personalize medicine to the patient and start to use markers to predict who might best benefit from a given therapy. So the therapies we chose, and this was, again, several years ago, so we tried to choose therapies we thought would really hang in there during the test of time. And this is in refractory lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer. The agents we chose were erlotinib, ZD6474, erlotinib plus bexeratine, and serafinib. And I'd say, looking back on that discussion three years ago, we probably picked some pretty good agents there. All of these drugs are either approved or in the phase three testing setting. Our patients, we feel like we're giving them therapy in any one of those drug combinations, and so they are pleased from that. And all these patients receive a fresh upfront core biopsy. In fact, they get three core biopsies upfront, which we use to try and build up the information on what biomarkers may be important, and then eventually use that information to predict 
or place them in an arm we feel will be most beneficial to them based on their biomarker profile. We won't answer the question at the end of this study whether you have this characteristic on your tumor or that, you should respond to ZD6474, but it is a step in the right direction in a refractory lung cancer population that you can get biopsies. We've enrolled over 75 patients at this time and have treated over 50 patients in this study. We are shooting for about 200 patients in this study. So accrual has been brisk and interest has been high. I want to ask you about a few non-small cell papers, and one was abstract 7536, looking at erlotinib as initial therapy in patients with PS2. Dr. Hesketh has presented this data before. This is, I believe, the final presentation of this data, focusing on a PS2 population in non-small cell lung cancer as first-line therapy. He was looking at survival as the endpoint in these patients, and erlotinib was the treatment at 150 milligrams daily, dosed every three weeks as one cycle. 53% were adenocarcinomas, with 22% being squamous. The patients were given erlotinib daily and reported a 10% grade 3 rash and a 7% grade 3 diarrhea rate. This was very consistent with the second-line study that Francis Shepard presented a couple years ago. What was interesting was a 7% response rate and a 36% stable disease rate, so not as robust as we might think. Again, this was not a biologically selected patient population. The 91% of these patients were current or former smokers, so it was representative of a general lung cancer population other than being PS2. Progression-free survival was two months, and median overall survival was five months. What was interesting to me was that only 26% of these patients, 26% completed less than one cycle of therapy. So it makes you wonder what were the factors that almost a quarter of these patients could not get through three weeks of erlotinib therapy. And I don't know if there was intolerance. I don't know if investigators decided they had to switch to chemotherapy or what was it. But again, 26% could not complete three weeks of erlotinib. And to me, that's a little bit odd when you look at the general lung cancer population of any type of therapy. And I guess one of the things that they sort of concluded is that they're interested in looking at the same strategy, but maybe in a better selected population. Where is this heading? Well, there are studies out there trying to focus on tissue and looking at the tissue to help define what a better population of patients would be who benefit from these TKIs. Now, we know in the general lung cancer population that you're going to get a 9% response rate, you're going to get decent stable disease and disease control rates, and survival will be improved by two months over doing nothing. Can we optimize that? And we've seen some hints of this from Europe. We've seen some hints from this from Asia. The studies are going to focus on biomarkers such as FISH, gene copy number, mutations, others we may discover. They'll also focus on populations. And right now, it's hard to say if mutation, which is probably leading the pack right now as far as the most important predictor of response, survival studies are trying to be assessed, whether a Asian non-smoker who doesn't have a mutation would do equally as well as one who does. I think we have to figure that out. We do know that there are differences preliminarily in some mutations, that some are better than the others. We know that resistance mutations can come up, and certainly there's been focus on RAS mutations as well. So we're still trying to sort out 
this whole biomarker scheme with EGFR drugs, but at least it's in the direction where we are trying to make this assessment. One thing that I think we still need to consider is many of these studies are using archived tissue for their biomarkers. And if patients have had chemotherapy or other therapies from when their original biopsy was taken, their tumor right now could express something a bit different than it did originally. And so I think the focus is going to be trying to get more real-time biopsies, just as we're doing in our battle program, to help eliminate any doubt, perhaps, that there may be differences in biomarkers, and this is something we're going to look at, looking at archive tissue versus the fresh tissue we get and whether there are differences in these patients after they've received therapy. We also need to discriminate whether we're focusing on primary tumor, lymph node tumor, or metastatic tumor. We haven't really done that very well in lung cancer, and we know that some of these metastatic sites can express different profiles of biomarkers than perhaps primaries or nodal metastases. So as we start to get more sophisticated with our biomarkers and how we're designing these studies, I think we will begin to see these breakdowns more so on site, more so on prior treatment and real-time biopsies as opposed to just histology per se. Now, we saw quite a few papers this year at ASCO on NAB, paclitaxel, and breast cancer, where, of course, it's approved for use. We're also starting to see some work coming out in non-small cell, and there were a couple of studies, one 7610 and the other 7659, looking at regimens including NAB. Can you talk about those papers? Well, the nanoparticle, I think, is another step in the right direction as far as how we want to approach therapy in cancers. Anything we can do to make delivery easier or enhance it is a good thing. We saw this, obviously, with liposomal variations in antibiotics, and they tried to move these over to some of the chemotherapeutics with some limited success. Now we're seeing this nanoparticle in which you can place chemotherapy inside of it and enhance delivery and perhaps even reduce toxicity. So this study that Dr. Reynolds presented was a phase two study looking at NAB, paclitaxel, carboplatin, and bevacizumab in advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Now, they used at least four cycles of chemotherapy, sometimes up to six cycles of chemotherapy. The combination was carboplatin AUC of six, the NAB paclitaxel at 300 per meter squared, and the bevacizumab at 15 milligram per kilogram every three weeks. They did not use maintenance bevacizumab in this study. It was stopped with the chemotherapy. And they enrolled 50 patients and saw a response rate of 31%, stable disease of 52%, which was very good. Progression-free survival was reported as seven-plus months. They did see a 52% neutropenic rate as well as a febrile neutropenia rate of 10%. So still some toxicity, but one of the aspects they really were focusing on to distinguish themselves from paclitaxel is the sensory neuropathy rate. And I think with the next abstract we discussed, they did see that they can reduce sensory neuropathy rates by changing the schedule up a bit. I guess the other thing that's come out in breast cancer, at least has been discussed, is the question of whether the neuropathy resolves quicker. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know if we have enough data right now in lung to say if the neuropathy resolves quicker. In breast cancer, I know you can wait and you have time usually to see if this resolves. But certainly in lung cancer, I think we don't have as much time. And we don't want to give patients a lot of toxicity up front because we know that if their disease continues, we don't want to be in a situation to wait for 
grade two or three toxicities to resolve. And especially neuropathy being a very important one, patients can't enroll into clinical trials if they have grade two neuropathy or higher. So this is a very important question and certainly needs further testing in lung cancer with this combination, especially with the NAB paclitaxel. In addition to the hope that this is going to be more efficacious, there are a couple of practical advantages of nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel, one being the shorter infusion time compared to paclitaxel, and the other being the fact that you don't need to use pre-medications with steroids, et cetera. How do you think those kinds of advantages will play out with this specific patient population? Well, I think, Neil, as we get into all types of therapeutics, as we discussed, we talk about biological drugs and biomarkers, and certainly we're going in that direction with science. We're trying to use different formulations, and certainly NAB-paclitaxel and NAB-docetaxel are, again, a step in a different direction, but one that does make practical sense. Anytime you can avoid giving any toxicity to a patient, that's going to be a good thing. Less pre-meds or no pre-meds, no cremafor, these are all good things because every one of us has dealt with a patient who's had severe reactions to a taxane while infusing or afterwards. And if you can eliminate even those few percentages, they will add up. And so this is something I welcome very much so. Patients don't have to remember about taking medicines. Doctors don't have to be called when patients forgot to take their medicines or if they didn't give them a prescription. So it just simplifies things better. And I think with some of these regimens and some of the apothalones that are being studied also have very short infusion times. Olympta has also a very short infusion time. These are all benefits to the patient and will trickle down and help everybody from that regard. What about the paper by Hawkins looking at three weekly nabpaclitaxel regimens? So I think Abraxas is going in the direction of setting up for their phase three study, and they will be, I believe, doing a study comparing nabpaclitaxel with carboplatin versus carboplatin and paclitaxel to see about getting registered in lung cancer. This type of weekly strategy adds some more data to the fact that it's feasible in other areas and certainly efficacious in those same areas. This was a 75 patient, really three separate phase two arms. One arm used nabpaclitaxel at 140 per meter squared, day one and eight. The second arm used nabpaclitaxel at a dose of 100 per meter squared, day one, eight, and 15. And the third arm used nabpaclitaxel at 125 per meter squared, day one, eight, and 15. And in all of the arms, they had response rates anywhere between 36 and 56 percent, progression-free survivals of between 5.6 and 6.5 months, and median survivals between 10.9 to 11.5 months. So clearly all of them were very active considering a phase two study. Toxicities, there was neutropenia, which was about 35 percent, thrombocytopenia, 11 percent. These were grade 3, 4 and what was more important was the sensory neuropathy issue. They had previously reported sensory neuropathy rates between 36 and 56% with their Q3-week dosing. The sensory neuropathy rates, grade 2, 3, were between 12 and 28%, so much better. And I think that is clearly the direction, again, to minimize toxicity for patients, especially something like neuropathy, is clearly helpful and although they are registering or planning to register as a Q3-week dosing, I think these weekly feasibility studies will give practitioners out there some data to use these in other schedules should they need to. The last thing I want to ask you about is a paper by Slotman, plenary paper looking at PCI and extensive small cell. Can you comment on that? 
brain metastases obviously is a big problem in small cell lung cancer. And we know that there was data, the meta-analysis was published in 1999 that suggested a decreased risk of brain metastases and an improvement in survival with radiotherapy. Now, this was again, predominantly in limited stage small cell with some extensive stage small cells. So the study that was presented at ASCO was an interesting one. I think we have to take this data with a grain of salt in that it does show some proof of concept, but again, we have to tailor it to our patients. This study focused on extensive disease small cell lung cancer. Four to six cycles of therapy was given up front. They call this induction therapy, but in fact, it is really the therapy that we give for extensive disease. And the patients, if they experienced any response, and this response was pretty much gauged by the investigators or the treating physician, there was not a real strict criteria based on resist or anything, they were then randomized to receive PCI. And the PCI varied between 20 and 30 gray, a one-week or two-week time frame, or no PCI. And this randomization occurred within five weeks of completing the chemotherapy, and then you started the PCI within six weeks of completing the chemotherapy. The primary endpoint was to demonstrate a reduction in risk of developing symptomatic brain meds. And I think that keyword is symptomatic. And I think that sort of goes with the spirit of the entire study is that patients were responding. They may have been symptomatically responding, feeling better. But that's a palliative situation. Correct. Correct. And so there was not a mandated staging of the brain at baseline which can obviously be very problematic. And there was a list of eligibility criteria that you had to have one or more of these symptoms in order to mandate an imaging test, either CT or MRI. And Neil, you know as best as I do, we get CTs when we don't want to find things, and we get MRIs when we do want to find things. And so... But the bottom line is we don't know what would have happened if they had been imaged. Some of those people might have had gross disease already. Correct, but asymptomatic. So those are the people that could have slipped through... And they went ahead and delivered the radiation to the brain, the most common two-thirds of the patients. The most common regimen was 20 gray in five fractions, so the one-week higher-dose intensity setting. And the numbers came out very positive. Hazard ratio ended up being 0.27. One-year survival was almost double. Um, That was hazard ratio for symptomatic meths? Correct. And so a 75% reduction almost. Right. And so it was a very favorable outcome. Failure-free survival was 23.4 versus 15.5%. Overall survival at one year was 27% versus 13.3%. And again, there were some stratification issues that were different as far as the amount of extrathoracic disease and extracranial disease that existed in the two cohorts. So I don't think definitively we can say one way or another that every patient who responds to chemotherapy should have PCI. I don't think this is that kind kind of study. But as far as giving a proof of principle, I think it validates what some people have already been doing, which is to give prophylactic cranial radiation in very good responding patients. And to me, if the bulk of disease is low, that makes sense. Because you think about if you were going to relapse, what would be more devastating? Would a liver relapse be more devastating? Or would a cranial relapse be more devastating to the patient? If patients are responding very well to therapy in the extensive disease setting, we're hopeful 
that they'll have a durable response. And if we give them PCI at six weeks, we haven't really proven whether the disease is in remission or at least will stay that way for three months. So when they do relapse, we don't know if they're a sensitive or a refractory patient. Although, again, if the PCI does not have too many side effects, and the main side effects in this study were headache, then I think it's justifiable.